Yo, check it out. What's up, y'all? Uh, damn. Remember that beat, that song? Uh, yo, it's Peter Agustin, and welcome back to the Houseless Podcast. It's my weekly podcast, and you are tuned in. Oh, wow, I just marked your name off the list. Here, you can enter. Um, you, oh, you have uh, some people that weren't already uh, uh, on there? Sure, yeah, they can come in, too. Everybody's welcome. Um, plus 10, 15, 25, it doesn't matter. Really, it's free for all. It's a free-for-all. And this is my show. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm putting this episode out on my birthday. So I, if, if all goes as planned, you know, with me and CJ, who edits these shows with me, uh, this was going to come out Monday, October 30th, so it's my birthday. And um, so, yeah, uh, I wanted to do that, and here we go. And I had a great conversation with our guest today, Odd Nostom, Dave Madsen, who I've known for a long time. This is another conversation I recorded while I was out in the Bay. We did this in his recording studio in Oakland, Berkeley, Oakland border, uh, that is like in this really cool kind of cutty, not a warehouse, but it used to be like an art gallery in like the 30s that's been converted and um, it's it's really cool. So we recorded this conversation there. Shouts to him. He doesn't do a lot of interviews and he definitely um, hasn't done many, if any, long form audio interviews before. So if you're a fan of his music, then you're definitely in for a treat. If you, uh, to bring you up to speed, if you might not be too familiar with his work, um, he, like uh, Yoni Wolf, our previous episode, is a core member of like the original kind of brass uh, of the Anticon Collective, uh, also from Cincinnati, Ohio, moved to the Bay in late 90s, early 2000s, and um, went on to be the art director of the label of Anticon as an imprint, and uh, produced many, many great records, uh, both as many solo instrumental albums some seminal works uh, for Anticon. He also did a lot of the uh, vocalist's uh, material. Uh, was an integral um, part of Cloud Dead with uh, Dose and Yoni. Um, one of the only producers to remix Boards of Canada. And he also produces Beat that we opened the show with, Salt on Everything by Tim Holland, a.k.a. Soul, probably one of his best-known songs off of, of my, in my opinion, arguably his greatest album, Um Selling Live Water. And uh, in fact, for people that were familiar with my record label, uh, my essentially defunct label imprint, uh, Female Fun Records, the very first release I ever did, MF Doom, Special Herbs, Volume 1, which came out in the year 2000. Dave, our guest, uh, did the layout and art direction uh, basically uh, for that release. We did... uh, a thousand copies now that's not to say that actually the original artwork is really is a collaboration between doom and lord scotch and they kind of uh did their work and then we laid it out laid out the record as as far as the 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 tools and after the interview uh with dave i went over to his house and then we went over to the missouri lounge uh one of my favorite watering holes in the bay area and uh, but he showed me his test pressing of it, which is immaculate and beautiful condition. Mine is beat to shit, unfortunately, because I played it a million times uh, 
as it being my very first record I ever put out on the label and it being Doom and that was a period of time when me and Doom were collaborating a lot I you know listened to that and took it out and played it in dingy bars and clubs his copy is amazing immaculate and looks like it's never been touched before and we looked at the proofs of it it was really a treat and the original one sheet for six months distribution so anyway thought I mentioned that what else? Yeah, with No Psalm, he's really actually had like a very prolific couple of years, too. I mean, just earlier, a few months ago, he released a, a record called Lif, L-I-F, that's um, out digitally through Alpha Pup. And then there's like a physical release on Sound and Science. And uh, there was a tape he put out last year called Music for Raising. The uh, year before last on Matthew David, my friend's uh, label, Leaving Records. He put out a great album called Sisters. So yeah, a bunch of stuff. But we kind of talk about his whole life story. So um, yeah, I hope you guys dig it. You know, and, and if this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you. It's called The House List. My name is Peter Augustin. I've been doing this now for a little over a year. And um, yeah, uh, you know, each episode is a little different from the next, but, you know, I, I book a lot of these guests because they're people I know or people I've worked with. And um, I hope you guys appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I'm super interested to know what the next episode is going to be because now I'm back in New York. And uh, I got a couple of half-finished ones, and I have a couple tentative ones. So it's anybody's guess, but um, I know that it's going to be great no matter what it is. So please subscribe wherever you listen to uh, podcasts, you know, without trying to sound as redundant as every other single podcast that exists in the universe. uh, I think by now you can kind of figure out where to find a podcast. There's about six different places. Um, It's available on all of those for the most part. The only place you can't listen to it so far is on Spotify. I would love to be able to get it on Spotify and one of these days it might. But you know what? You can find it so many different places that... It doesn't necessarily have to be on every single outlet. As long as you find it, listen, if it comes down to it and you know someone that doesn't have a phone or a computer, I'd be happy to dub a cassette of these and individually give them or sell them to anyone that would want one. Um, Now, I don't know if I've just obligated myself to doing that, but uh, I'd do it. I'd burn a CD. You know, you got someone that lives like uh, some far flung part of the world and they don't have the Internet. Uh, and they only have a Discman or a Walkman, hey, let me know. Uh, I'll try to hook them up. You can uh, find me on Twitter, at HouselessPod. You can write me an email, peter at agostinagency.com. Um, hey, whatever you need to do. So anyway, this is a great and an extensive conversation, so I won't waste your time anymore. Shout out to all my Scorpios out there, everyone born in the month of October, and all my Scorpios especially too. So let's get into this conversation with none other than Odd Nostam uh, here on The House List. I'm glad that you were a part of the DJ stuff thing. Oh yeah. That was was, fun. That was a pleasure. It was cool. Um, And maybe for people that perhaps, I think this might be kind of an interesting way to start this too, perhaps, is, you know, obviously a lot of the people that listen to podcasts weren't able to be at this, you know, celebration for stuff that we just did in San Francisco. But I thought that your contribution to it was, uh, was actually quite cool and very heartfelt. Like maybe if, if you wouldn't mind maybe sort of retelling that, um, little story or what you did, cause it was, 
in the context of the night, you know, there's a lot of different performances and rappers and groups kind of reuniting and DJs and shit, but you did like this kind of homage to her in a way by just playing a single song and yeah. stuff, right? So what so what was the story? It was it was fine you found a record, right? Right, right. So the uh, I found the original pressing of the Beatbop twelve inch uh Ramel Z. Ramel Z, uh K Rob, um produced and funded by Jean Michel Basquiat. Uh, it was released in 1983. Um, I found it for one dollar at my favorite thrift store in Berkeley called Out the Closet. So you were just digging, just like a normal kind of day, digging for no, records. You know, uh, actually, and and that's where this is for me is is is, is profound. The way I found the record was, I was kind of hung over. This is about 11, 12 years ago. Right. Um, I went to the farmers market in, in downtown Berkeley. Oh, I'm sorry. I went to the farmer's market in downtown Berkeley and got a bunch of shit, produce and whatnot. And I was, right. <clears throat> I was going, I was riding my bike uh, back to West Berkeley where I live. So it's all downhill. And I was one street over from the street uh, that the, the thrift store is on. Mm-hmm. And I just felt this incredibly strong pull. Like I need to go to this, to out the closet. I need to go. I just... It, it was overwhelming, and I was like, I don't want to go. I, I, I just want to go home and make some food. I'm tired. I'm a little hungover. Right. So I go, and literally as I'm walking into the door, I could see a, a crate of records. And the first thing I noticed was the little crown, the, the white crown, yeah. is, which is which is like his, uh, one of his trademark. Yeah, Basquiat's like almost, yeah, it's trademark. It's ammo. So I saw that, and I like my I I I just I I got this huge adrenaline rush because I knew what the record was, but I was like, "There's no way this is an original." I mean, right. I, I mean, this is in a thrift store in Berkeley. So I I go to the crate, and literally, it was full of uh, blown out twelve inches with with the labels washed off, like fully burnt twelve inches. Whoa! You okay, could, so that's some serious uh, DJ had them at one point in time, right? Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that it was a a DJ from New York and came to the Bay, perhaps passed away, and they just put the records, you know, uh, gave them out the closet. Right, because that style of blowing out the 12-inch label is a very, like, you would associate that with, like, a cool Herc or something like that when they they would literally, like, wash out the label so people wouldn't know what they were playing. Yeah, and you could see, I mean, you could tell the 12 inches were so burnt, like the different right. areas where they were scratching the shit out of right. it. So anyways... um. I, I pull the record out, the, the, the Beatbox 12-inch, I pull it out, and, you know, the cover's not in perfect condition. It's got some dings. But you you know a record that came out in, 80, in, in the 80s. I mean, you right. can just tell by the, 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 the quality of the paper, mm-hmm. the aging. Definitely. So I pulled the, the record itself out, and it was unplayed, like wow. literally perfect condition. Uh, so I, I was freaking out, man. I was freaking out. So what I did was I didn't even bother with the other 12-inches. But I took two of the 12 inches and I put the Basquiat 12 inch, the Bebop 12 inch between the two generic 12 inches. And I went to the counter and I was convinced that the lady behind the counter was going to know, <laughs> you know, so that it was an original. Yeah. My heart was pounding. I was like, oh my God, she's going to know that this is like a thousand dollar record. And she charged me three bucks, you know, for the three records. And I went home and, and st- so, uh, the stuff, uh, she got wind of this. She heard about it. I don't know how she heard about me having this record, but uh, she interviewed me discussing how I found the record on, on uh, this was in 2006. Mm-hmm. 
when Anacon had our had, uh, we had our offices in San Francisco. Right, right. And that that footage never came out. Oh, for Vinyl Exchange TV, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but ever since then, uh, for the la- for, you know for 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 ten years, every time I would see Steph at a gig, if I was DJing, she would come up to me, and in a in a, in a and just be like, "Did you bring the Beatbox 12? Just <laughs> straight up, she would just straight up, "Did you bring the Beatbox 12? <laughs> and I was like, "Nah, you know." Like every time I'd just be like, "Nah, it's at home on my wall," you know. Like I'm not well, you know. So fast forward to last month, uh, September, Steph and I opened together. Uh, we, we were DJing together. Uh, opening for Prince Paul, right? And we had a great time. And of course, she asked me, "Did I bring the Beatbox 12?" And I, you know, I. She would always tease me about it, and I and I loved it. Like it became like a, like a thing y'all would do. Like if she didn't ask me, I th- there would be some, you know, I'd be like, "Well, she she didn't ask me about the Beatbox 12." You know, it's like she's teasing <laughs> right. me about it. Right. And then of course th- that was the last time I I saw her. Uh, so when you asked me to to do the the benefit show I, I was you know and you, you told me I had maybe 10 or 15 minutes I was just thinking well I, I mean what can I do that would be unique because uh, I mean I can DJ I can play whatever funk hip hop whatever right. or, or I could play live but I was like you know what 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 would Steph really appreciate well I'll bring the Bebop 12 right so I brought it and I played a couple records before it and then I dropped it and I, I briefly explained to the crowd why I was playing it and it was exciting. It was, you know, like I, luckily I didn't scratch the record or nothing like that. I got it back yeah. in the sleeve. Uh, I got some cool photos of you from behind <laughs> the turntable too. Yeah. Yeah, that's dope, dude. I mean, it's a great way and just a wonderful tribute to her as well. I mean, that you yeah. guys kind of had that, that little. Because uh, nobody else, I mean, a lot of people know I have that record, but nobody seems to be all that interested. You know, it's like where she, where she would always remind me. She even hit me on Facebook maybe four years ago and was like, do you still have that record? And I'm like, yep. You know, so I love that. I love that about, there's something about, you know, people that care about records like that too, where it's, it's, it could just be one kind of random joint, but that they know that you have it and like, uh, they want it so badly, you know? (laughs) Um, but you know, it's not like, I don't know. It's cool. It's a cool story. You know, and there, there was another uh, friend of mine who was a, a record collector. I don't really see him much anymore, but, but he was amazed that the record even made it to California. Sure. You know, cause uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's such a rare record is because uh, you know, most of them either didn't make it out of New York right? or they were probably just destroyed or they were sold because of the, technically it's a, it's, it's, it's a Basquiat print like in the yeah, art world right. it, it, it it's an authentic basquiat print and 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 also the the the, the music is amazing it's oh a, absolutely song. classic i think your like uh, you know assessment of how it probably got here is probably true you know it's probably a new york dj came with some records and either had to get rid of them or passed away and they were just there and someone else was just like well where's the nearest thrift store because yep. i don't want to deal with these you know which is that's the funny thing about records man they just they stick around you know after the person that one time owned them you know that's a whole thing too now with like big record collector people is just buying collections from people too yeah but not to go too far in that zone yeah i mean i tend to i'm definitely a pretty serious about my records but i i don't i don't spend much money on records I, i prefer to just find them Right at thrift stores. Um, well, we did that thing together, or at least I was with you when you did that thing with Jeff with Gel, 
for Accelerator. Oh, you uh, were here for that? Yeah, I was just like, uh, oh, I was just hanging out with y'all and and accompanied you to, I don't know what thrift store that was, another one in the Bay. It, it wasn't was the same one, was it? No, no, th- this was a, a spot called Brent's Unique Shop, and it was more of a, I don't want to say a junk shop, but it was just jam-packed full of knickknacks and anything you can imagine she had it and she had a ton of records um it was clearly you already picked through oh big time yeah and her you just pri- picked some random thing and made a beat out of it right yeah yeah i mean i had already been there i i actually found a a, a pretty clean copy of Susie cream cheese on 45 which yeah. is i don't know if you're familiar with that uh, nah. t- teddy and uh teddy and his patches it's a classic psych rock 45 super duper rare um that's one of the other better records that i've found at a at a, at a spot like that but yeah it was just a junk shop uh they both have since passed uh brent and his wife wow. um which is un- un- unfortunate so the, the the store no longer exists oh no way wow but yeah we did the tune in the afternoon with accelerator jeff and i went in there and i can't remember what our budget was but we it was next to nothing it was like maybe maybe a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks or something like that oh i think it was under, i think it was probably more like 40 bucks oh word yeah yeah, I want to go back to that. Yeah, I was standing on the curb. Yeah, when you all did that. Nice. Um, yeah, that was kind of. I don't know if it was the first of that kind where you get producers to go get records and then make something out of it. Right. That's turned into a thing now, for sure. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'll say to our credit, like every single sound on that track came from those records. We didn't add anything else right. from any other sources. It was just those records. Granted, we had more than three records. But uh, yeah, we. That was a cool, cool experience for sure. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's it's fun to see how that thing uh, that 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 approach has progressed. You know, through uh, rhythm roulette. Right, and right. I know Accelerator did more of those, and then I know there yeah, was definitely. like a Dub Lab did something like that. Uh, maybe I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. So when did you start buying, like really buying records? Was it when you you were obviously still in Cincinnati, right? When you start when you were collecting music, right? Well, my parents, uh, they had they they had a pretty decent record collection. My mother's a belly dancer, so there were there was a lot of Middle Eastern music in the house. Um, she put out an album, right? Yeah, my parents put out a private press record in I think eighty six or eighty seven. They recently threw away most of them, and then when I found that out, I was like, I whatever, however many you have left, I want them. So right. they 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 sent me about twenty uh, about a year ago. Um, and it's actually a good record. It's it's Greek and Arabic, with some Turkish flavor in there. Um, it's just basically be- traditional belly dancing music. Yeah. Um, so I've always been around records, uh, and I started seriously buying records probably in '96. Um, the very first record that I that I bought was in '84, and it was no, I'm sorry, the, I bought two records at Kmart. Okay. In '84. One of them was uh, Madonna's True Blue, which I no longer have. Um, you got rid of that one? <laughs> <laughs> it got, yeah, I don't even know when I got rid of that one. But uh, the other one that I still have is uh, New York City Breakers. Oh, dope. Which is a comp that Michael Holman put together. And that was the first time I heard Sucker MCs, um, White Lines. There's some other classics on there. You got that at Kmart in 1984? First first two vinyl i ever bought with my with my with my own money wow man and because you know like back then i you know i grew up in cincinnati ohio and i grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood uh a neighborhood called called kennedy heights mm-hmm. and so i was surrounded by mostly 
Well, it was a, a black middle class neighborhood, mm-hmm. so it was like you know, it wasn't nothing really too crazy going on. But uh, I was exposed to to what, what we called breakdancing music. Right, right, right. Since the very early '80s, um, I'm guessing pretty much since the music broke out of New York and started to hit the airwaves. Right. There was a radio radio station called WBLZ that I used to tune into, and I would record songs off of the the radio and had no idea what it was like my friends and i we would just call it breakdance music um i mean in those years that was like the height of of it in like pop culture too in a way you know um breakdancing and like yeah. people like and the films beat beat street and yeah breaking and breaking and like even just like in like pop like in sitcoms and like with people wearing fucking <laughs> headbands and like you know like sweatbands yeah and like yeah um or maybe that came a little later i don't know i was born in 76 by the way so okay cool i i, I don't remember how yeah it was like maybe 82 83 was when i first really started to hear that that music right and did you have siblings i have uh, i have one older brother uh he was never into he was more of a rock and roll guy like right. led, Ze- led zeppelin and mm-hmm Rush, well, yeah, I love Rush. Yeah, well, like uh, Cincinnati was more maybe more of a rock town, right? Would you say like well, well, musically? Since, how would you describe it back as far as growing up? You know, I mean, to be honest with you, Cincinnati, I, you know, I mean that's that's where King Records. That's right. You know, I mean, uh, the Funky Drummer was recorded in Cincinnati. No, oh, that's what's up. I did is, not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, you know. I mean, but you know the break. I mean, everybody knows of course, the, you know, James Brown's funky drummer. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the Collins brothers, Bootsy and Catfish Collins, were, were born and raised in Cincinnati. They were, they, they were actually called in to play with James Brown uh, while they were supposedly playing a gig in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, I've heard this story, yes. L.A. Reed's from Cincinnati, I believe. Uh, there's There's a... A really rare record called Ramp, which is a Roy Roy Ayers music production. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were out of Cincinnati. I mean, it. I never saw Cincinnati as a as a rock and roll town because, <clears throat> excuse me, because again, I grew up in a pretty much black neighborhood, yeah. and I just gravitated towards that music. Um, um, Did you ever go to Dayton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely. another funk town in in, in oh the, yeah in oh, the state of Ohio. Ohio players, um, I mean, Dayton definitely has a good rock scene. You know, Guided by Voices and uh, the Breeders, Kim Deal. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, Cincinnati is a very black and white town in general. It's right. it's 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 also one of the more race righted cities in, in in the country, which is unfortunate. Um, what was high school like? Uh, high school was. Uh, I, I I hated high school, overall. Um, was there like multiple high schools in Cincinnati? Obviously, there must have been at least a couple, right? Because I grew up in a I grew up like oh, in yeah. a small town, in a college town, so just one, you know. Yeah, Cincinnati's a, a fairly <laughs> decent sized city. Yeah, uh, I I don't know how many high schools, but um, where'd you go? I went to uh, Walnut, Walnut Hills High mm-hmm. School. Uh, I graduated in 1994. Uh, I I don't have my yearbook, but I really wish I had it because every photo of me in the yearbook, I'm with only black people. I had a black girlfriend. I'm hanging out with her in a lot of these photos. Um, I had skin skin fades throughout high school. 
I was oh, like, yeah? I was like the hip hop. How many kid. times? How many times a month did you get your hair cut? Were you like a once a week guy? Like, did you like? No, did you keep no, it that no, tight? No, 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 no. <laughs> my, my my hair grow, grows pretty slow, anyways. Oh, so okay, gotcha. A fresh fade for me would, would probably lasted like a good three weeks. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just super. I I was like the the most wigged out hip hop, all about hip hop, and I was the only white kid in my entire high school that was interested in hip hop. Wow. And I was known as the hip hop guy, so people. Any of my friends that wanted to know what was up, they would come ask me because I would always buy the newest singles, mm-hmm. tapes. So basically, uh, so it was tapes for you for the most part. Yeah, like around 1990, uh, there was one record shop close to, to to where I grew up called Everybody's Records, uh-huh. and they had a small box of tapes next to the uh, to the register, and that's where they kept the hip hop shit. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they they didn't have any vinyl, uh, any hip hop vinyl. I mean, they had, they did have vinyl, but not hip hop. So the, their hip hop section was literally, you had to go to the counter and ask, "Let me see the you know the hip hop tapes." And it would just oh, be wow. one 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 little box, probably with like ten or fifteen tapes in it. And I would just buy whatever whatever was new. You know, like I don't know what this is, I'm buying it. I don't know what this is, I'm buying it. Right. Um, and of course, we you know we had Young TV Raps, so I was able to of course Source Magazine. Uh, yeah, that was the era of the, of uh, those were the the methods of you know receiving the music. It was Young TV Raps, yep. you know the Source, and then other magazines, of course, and radio, and then whatever your store was, you know. Yeah, it was it was very interesting because I I felt like I was experiencing a, a phenomenon in music in real time that nobody else was because I mean. They're just people weren't listening to hip hop in, in Cincinnati. At least the people that I knew. Right. That th- I I had a huge uh, a small handful of friends uh, in high school that were deep into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but like I was a kid also. Like when the first LL Cool J tape came out, radio. I had that, and I would bring it to school. I don't know what this is like eighty five, and uh, pe- kids were like in awe. Like oh my god, you got the LL Cool J on tape. <laughs> right. You know and had all the fat boys beastie boys all that kind of stuff but yeah um did you like make mixtapes for people no nah, I, n- I never really did that uh did you dj in high school nope i got into building car stereos though really so i, I want to say I, I started driving in 92 and by 94 i had a pretty pretty decent sound system so basically, between '94 and '97, I was pretty hardcore on building car stereos, and my my, my goal was to have the, the most bumping system in, in in my neighborhood. Interesting. You know, that's funny because if you, you know, put that up against your music, <laughs> you know, your production, which is always been like heavy, low end, you know, in a way. I mean, there's obviously lots of different styles of stuff that you've done over the yeah. years, but there is a certain. Um, subsection of your discography that's like really crunchy like you know uh hardcore hip-hop of you know track wise that's like eric sermon style uh production you know nice i, I appreciate that <laughs> yeah i, I love mean, eric sermon yeah so anyway um, but so that's the thing so like when i got into building car stereos i mean i i was very serious i would take the entire you know the the entire interior out of my car run the cables wow. I built I had a my whole trunk was full uh, it was completely full with this big sub box 
that had hinges so I can get to my spare tire. I mean, it was, I was. What kind of car was that? It was a Dodge Shadow. Nice. Yeah. If anybody has, uh, there's a cassette that I recently put out called Off Tapes through a label called Glue Moon, which is run by Davey from uh, the guy behind Transformers. Inside is a photo of that car. Um, So the thing about that car and and the system that I had, um, I got pretty disillusioned with around 97. I didn't, I I, I really felt like my life was going nowhere. I was 21 years old and I was hanging out with basically a bunch of idiots doing stupid shit. Right pissing my parents off I flunked out of uh, the University of Cincinnati kicked me out I tried going to a, a two year commercial art school called Ancinelli's and I, I, I didn't get a job after doing that mm-hmm. uh, so I had a bit of a nowadays I, uh, I call it a breakthrough Okay. but at, at the time I thought and my parents thought that it was a breakdown um, I literally went a whole week without speaking to nobody, and I quit my job. I walked away from every single friendship that I had because uh, a lot of my friends were catching cases. You know, I had a buddy that got busted in a fucking crack house and went to jail, and you know, it just it, it got really ugly. So I just wow. I, I I got so disillusioned that I literally just shut that part of my life off completely, and. Uh, I to try to st- was the idea as to like kind of start anew and like I'm just gonna wipe the slate clean or it was just like I can't deal with oh it any wasn't of this conscious shit. like I mean I wasn't conscious of what was going on really? I was just like I I I don't know I mean I literally was like I I felt like I was frozen you know and, mm-hmm. and my, my my parents were deeply concerned uh and I I just started focusing on on my art on drawing mm-hmm. and drawing is something that I've been doing since I was for as long as I can remember I've been drawing in fact my mother lo- loves to tell the story that as a kid the only thing that would truly calm me down w- was when she would give me a piece of paper and some crayons or, or a pencil or whatever and that would always work mm. and to this day that's usually uh, if I'm feeling some anxiety if I'm bored in the airport or like right. you know like I'll pull out my sketchbook and I'll just I'll scribble and it works. It just works. It's just something for me that's just, it's always therapeutic, always there. It's always available to me. So back to 97 when I had this breakdown, but now I realize it was a breakthrough because ever since then I took a, basically I took a sharp turn left Okay. when I was cruising, you know, more towards the right. And <coughs> what that entailed was, was, was me, uh, basically just, you know, I sobered up. I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking weed. Uh, I stopped hanging out with every single person, all my friends. I, I stopped all that shit, and I enrolled in art school. I went to the Art Academy in Cincinnati. This was, again, 97. Um, I had a job at a fondue restaurant. I worked in a kitchen, and I just... What, you're like melting cheese? No, nah, it was more uh, preparing plates. Right, right. And... <clears throat> I was pretty good at it, you know, just laying out raw chicken, raw beef. Right. Um, and when I was working at this fondue restaurant, and I was also going to art school, I just started art school, uh, my kitchen manager, I can't remember his name, but he he would always talk about recording on a four-track. Really? And he was a, a Frank Zappa fanatic. And at that time, I... I 
I'm sorry, I'm, I'm you can edit this little mm-hmm. brain yeah, part out. <laughs> um, so Frank Zappa, like, so the, what he was like, um, what was he doing? He was making, he was like making rock songs. Well, he was a ba- uh, so he was a bass player and he would always play Frank Zappa. And that, that that's how I got familiar with, with Zappa. And we had a boom box in the kitchen and I would bring in old mixtapes that I made, you know, like in the early nineties, I would, I would make uh, mixtapes of just instrumentals of songs that I, that I loved. And I would oh, play dope. just yeah. of the instrumentals. Yeah. Yeah. I was dope. obsessed with instrumentals. You know, like you buy a single or, or a maxi tape, right. usually right. had the instrumental. Um, so I, I would play those tapes and he, he, he heard something. There was something about the way I would put those tapes together. And he was like, he was like, you ever, you ever thought about making music on, you know, make, making beats? And I was like, nah, like, I don't, I don't know nothing about that. Like I, but I love beats. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And he, he was like, you should get a, a four track. And I was like, then what? And he's like, well, maybe you get a, I don't know, a drum machine. And, and I'm like, you know, I don't oh, even know wow. what this, I don't even know what a four track is. I don't know what he's talking about. But then one day, uh, I, I had, I had some cash, a little extra cash. This was still, this was, this was January of 98. Okay. Okay. And I didn't know anybody else besides my kitchen manager that, that did music. Right. Um, I went to my local music store, um, and they had a used Tascam uh, 8-track. So I bought it, and I bought a drum machine, a Roland drum machine. And they also had this thing called a Dr. Sample SP-202, yeah. uh, which is made by Roland. And I was like, oh, cool, this is a sampler. I, I mean, I can. It's, it, it seemed like it would be pretty intuitive, you know? Like, I mean, as somebody who's built, you know, put together car stereos, I figured I could figure this shit out. Like, if I can figure out how to make a car system put that together I can figure out how to work an A-track a drum machine and a sampler right. so literally the day I, I brought all that equipment home I started making I, I, I looped I think the first thing I looped was a Dr. Alimentado break um, off the Best Dressed Chicken in Town album which by the way is on that is the original version of that is on that off tapes that I mentioned earlier that has oh, wow. a, that has a photo of the that was uh, literally the first beat I ever looped Wow, man! And uh, so, what off tapes is just, is just joints you pulled off cassettes that you had made or something? The, the off tapes. Um, I recently revisited all my old tapes uh, until the A track that I was using died. So right, I right, was right. only able, only able, excuse me, only able to get through so many of the tapes. Yeah. But off tapes um, was just stuff that I either forgot that I made or versions of things that, that were maybe like a, a early cloud dead track or a, or a plan oh, amazing nine. i gotta check that out i haven't i haven't peeped that man oh it's raw as fuck dirty as fuck um so, so or, or, okay or or for example like on the off tapes like there's stuff on there that t- today sounds pretty pretty normal where back then i i i was like this is kind of crazy like what am i thinking right, this right. kind of shit yeah so any you know well so, that was also the late 90s i guess was the really the height of like the you know hip-hop in big recording studios there's budgets so like sonically you know bedroom tapes was still like you know kind of like a, um it was such a small cult thing compared to the hip-hop of the day you know maybe you know yeah, yeah. i mean I'm, i honestly i had no idea like i didn't know about any underground stuff really okay i i was familiar with uh dr octagon i knew company, okay i knew company flow i had the lyricist lounge comp uh-huh but other than that, I mean, I didn't know that there was anything 
deeper than that, you know, or I, because I, I, I didn't know anybody. I, I didn't know anybody that was in hip hop. I was pretty much like a hip hop kid on my own, pretty much my whole life. I mean, so I just had discovering it on your own. Too. Yeah, just just I got to decide for myself like what I thought was dope and what what I didn't like. That's cool. So when I started actually making beats in '98, my my whole thing was I wanted to make shit that I could bump in my car. As That's I was classic. So like, See, Eric Sermon, man, you and Eric <laughs> Sermon. <laughs> that was his thing. I mean, I mean, if you listen to those like kind of the EPMD stuff, it's like crafted to be played like to be bumped in like a proper one of my favorite uh, by the way speaking of eric summer one of my favorite instrumentals of all time is uh so what you saying that beat is oh yeah to this incredible. day to this day i can't get enough of that shit um but yeah so for about six months i was making beats on my own no, no, nobody heard them they, I, I wasn't on the internet i didn't know i mean the internet i mean that's not true i, I had a, a my hotmail that mm-hmm. was it mm-hmm. i didn't know shit i didn't know nothing about the internet just making beats uh driving to art school listening to these beats and that's how uh the first couple tapes that i put out came about is so what went what is did no Stom exist did the name did did that exist at this point uh, in time no Stom existed um <clears throat> and that's just my last name back uh, backwards uh, right. madison just flipped um the odd came later um oh so no Stom existed first my very first tape which is called anecdotic self-portrait yep uh, it's it's just under no stone, and I oh, that's dope. I think I only did about fifty co- copies of that one. Yeah, it's a rare piece, man. Then it, yeah, it's it's some pretty strange stuff, man. When I go back to it, I'm just like I don't know what I was thinking, but there's some... you still have copies of it yourself. I have probably two copies. Um, did you just give those away, or did you try to sell them in Cincinnati, or what? What well, that's how I actually met. Uh, Dose one and and got got you know got acquainted with those guys was with that tape. Um, I would say mid ninety eight. I was trying to sell that tape at the same record store that I used to buy my my hip hop tapes from, uh, everybody's records, and I had like a little cardboard thing with a sign, you know, and here's a tape. And oh, dope! Really? I, I probably sold two tapes. Um, but uh, I I actually ran into Yoni uh, Yoni Wolf who goes by Y, or used to go by Y, and that now is, you guys know who I'm talking. Yeah, about. yeah. Um, He's from Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've known him f- since the, the early '80s. Uh, I went to school with his brother Josiah, the drummer. Uh, from between '81 and '94, we we were in school together. Wow. Uh, first grade through twelfth grade. I didn't know you guys went that far back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've known. I mean, I don't remember not knowing Josiah. I think Josiah is the only non-blood relative that I've known for that long. I mean, since '81. I, and I, I remember when we first met. Uh, we used to be in band class together. He was, he was always a great drummer. Dope. I remember, like in third grade, he would be laying down pretty funky grooves, and it was, you know, for us, it was like, wow, this kid's fucking dope. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, fast forward back to to '98. Uh, I I ran into Yoni at the record store, uh, everybody's records, when I was trying to sell my tapes, and he he told me that he was also making music with this guy named Adam, who, uh, who went by Dose One, and he told me that he they also had uh they were in a they had the band what was it called Apogee, and he invited me to to one of the rehearsals, so I went to the rehearsal, and. That's when I met Mr. Dibbs, uh, Dose One, 
there were some other folks that I can't remember their name that I, that I met for the first time. Like like performers? Yeah, yeah. Um, Rappers? Nah, just like... Cats? Just cats, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah just, I got you. Um, Where was that space at? It was, like a, it was a practice space or something? Or someone's crib or... It was somebody's crib. I, you know, I, don't, I honestly don't remember where it was. Uh-huh. I, I just remember it was a nice house. Right. And interesting. Okay. <clears throat> I was really impressed with 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 Adam uh, Dose One because he he was just freestyling, and I I had never heard a, vo- a voice like that before or like that style of 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 rapping. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, he's wholly unique into his own right. I mean, like to this day, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I gave no no uh. I actually invited Yoni out to my car and I played him my very first tape, the anecdotic self-portrait. And he was like, yeah, this is cool. This is cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I gave him a copy of the tape. He said that he would hit me up. Um, a few months went by and I got a phone call from Yoni. And he was like, yo, you should come through. Uh, we like your shit. Um, come through. So I, Cool, okay. So that's pretty much how Cloud Dead popped off. Uh because they already had like uh well they were doing green think yeah and then yoni was doing his solo stuff the the part-time people cage right um i actually helped him mix some of that stuff oh really wow part-time. yeah and then because uh, they were working on a four track they also had the doctor sample 202 and um interesting so you guys were kind of like working with the same tools before you even really like you know connected yeah know? yeah i mean and and that's why i mean I already knew Yoni, so it was it was that's already, right, it was already right. all good, you know. But the fact that we were kind of doing similar stuff with similar equipment was 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 like wow! Like finally, like somebody that I can share my music with and right. I can work with, because you know up until that point I didn't have that. Not that I was necessarily uh, looking for that, but it okay. was it was just yeah. very refreshing. It was it was like a whole new like literally I went from hanging out with punks and thugs and thieves. Uh, to like six months later, I'm I'm hanging out with you know what became Cloud Dead, you know, and yeah. in Anticon. And, right. Uh, to to this day, I'm still kind of boggles my mind when I think about that. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if you look back at the music that was created under the Cloud Dead kind of name, because it's it's uh, you know, and I talked to Yoni about this too. I mean, I kind of marvel in it a little bit because it was so unusual, you know, especially. Um, you know both of those singles the 10 inches mm-hmm. um, and how it evolved into like what would be 10 to which is obviously like a little bit later on yeah. but you know it's a pretty influential group for 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 um, having only released music during a you know just a few years you know yeah um, and yeah that, that was a very very creative time and things were just Things didn't feel like they were happening all that fast. Like now, things it just time it just feels like it's flying. You know, yeah, I know. And, I know. It seems like we're on rapid <clears throat> speed every day. You know. Yeah, it's crazy because back then it just was. You know, we we would hang out for hours just just tinkering on things, and you know, before we knew it, we had what became the first Cloud Dead album. Uh, I think we worked on that for probably a year and a half, two years, maybe not even that, but. Like I was saying, it just back then it was just different because it wasn't you didn't have this internet thing you didn't have, right. you know like you 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 actually had the patience to sit through a ninety minute tape you know and speaking mm-hmm. of that like Buck sixty five was a massive influence because 
so when I met Dose One, he turned me on to so much amazing underground hip hop. Everything from Deep Puddle Dynamics to to the Juggernauts, all the LA stuff, Shapeshifters. Yep. And in particular, Buck 65's Vertex. Right, which is a pretty influential project. Oh man, that's that tape to me. When I heard that, it hit me the same way that De La Soul's Three Feet Three Feet High and Rising hit me when I was uh, yeah. thirteen. You right. know, it just something about the the length of it and just the the arc, like the way it just flows. Um, He's a genius. So, anyways, but I mean, uh, my point is, is like you know, I would sit through the the original version of Vertex on tape is ninety minutes, you know, right. and, and you you would sit through it, you'd sit through a th- three minute intro, you know, and, and <laughs> you'd go all the way to the end, you know, and and nowadays it's different and it, and it, it's cool, it's different, but back then, well, it's, we, it's got to be a lot of it has to deal with the technology. If you're listening to a cassette on a Walkman, it's like you can digest something that's 90 minutes when you have a phone in your hand and you can you can just just touch it and then the song moves to the next thing yeah. uh you know it's just i don't know psychologically we we just push things forward a lot faster than before maybe perhaps i don't know um what's anyway. the thing what's interesting the thing about you think about like how music kind of evolved from you know 78s which play really fast and then you get 45s and you have these like really compact pop songs on mm-hmm. 45s mm-hmm. you know it's just it's designed for short attention span like you know you got you, you got to hook them right away you yeah. know and then before you know it two minute two and a half minutes go by and you're on to the next song but then as CDs came out and you know the longer format tapes right 90 right. minute tape i mean like plan 9 i i i believe it's the original tape version is probably like well over an hour. Um, nice. I could be wrong. It, it it might even be closer to ninety minutes because I was so inspired by by Vertex, Bucks, like it, just the the audacity of doing such a long album. Like fuck it, you know. And and and, and the thing about like Plan Nine for me, like Plan Nine was was also that was my second tape, and that was stuff recorded between ninety eight and ninety nine. While you were still, I mean, you were still in Cincinnati, obviously, right? Yeah, still in Cincinnati, still living with my parents. Um, you always see the credits on that stuff is uh, recorded at Mom's. Right. That's, you know, my, my parents' spot. Um, Did you, where that, where the, um, the cover of that, where was that photo taken? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that, that was taken in, I believe, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we were... Was it you doing hey, shows? Can you, can you pause real quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was shot in Madison. We, we on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that picture was taken. It's a self portrait I took at a uh, what do you call it? the AAA station in Madison, Wisconsin. So that's like um, a gas station. Yeah, you know. Uh, so basically, what happened is, is we uh, Jeff Gel, um, Jeffrey Gel Logan, uh, right. Adam Dose One Yoni. Or why we went to Minneapolis to do uh, to play with Atmosphere, and this was uh, for New Year's uh, 1999. Was so it as it, Cloud Dead or something else? No, this is pre. This is before Cloud Dead. So just everyone doing their own sets. I was just hanging out. I just got oh, to go cool. to hang out. So I just went, and that's when I, that's where I met uh, the first time I met um, Andy Broder, Fog. Right. First time I met Slug and and those those cats. Um, we stayed with Slug. Uh, we had a 
it was a big party that we went to on New Year's Eve uh, from, you know, going from 98 to 99. And the next day we, we, we drove back to Chicago and Jeff was driving, Joe. And shit got a little f- funky in the car. Like Adam was fucking around with stuff and Jeff was fucking around and it was people were just kind of fucking with each other, having fun. And we hit some ice, flew off the road, blew out all four tires. Uh, it wow. was an, a horrible experience. So we we uh, we got towed to the AAA station, and I took that picture of myself. But the other thing that was significant about that night was we had already been working on what became Cloud Dead. I I believe we had already recorded the very first track, which is Apartment A Part One. Right. I think we already had that one recorded. And we, Adam already had the name. And that night, I remember we, we the three of us were like, okay, when, when we get back to Cincinnati, we're going to do this Cloud Dead thing full, full on. And this is before Mush. This is before, you know, Anticon was still kind of bubbling up as a, as a collective. Right. I mean, it was before any of you guys had moved to California, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't move out. Uh, Yoni and I moved out together in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, Right before nine eleven, actually. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so where, where were we going with this? Well, yeah, just trying to get some. I mean, the initial question was where? What was the origin of the photo on the cover? Uh, Plan nine. Yeah. yeah. But obviously, there's more. You know, a picture is worth you know a thousand words, right? So um, yeah. So Plan nine actually uh, that was the first. Well, that was my second tape, but it was the first one that actually got around to people. Uh, I know Soul heard that tape. Uh, I met him at Scribble Jam in 98. Oh, I'm sorry, 99. That, uh-huh. That's when the tape came out. Right. So, 99 was when I met uh, pretty much everybody that, that became a part of uh, the core owners of Anticon. Yeah. Uh, and I gave most of those guys a copy of Plan 9. And everybody was psyched on it, so I just became a part of Anticon. It wasn't even really much of a. It was just kind of like you're you're with us, you're one of us, and I was like, cool, cool, I'm down. So it wasn't, yeah. I mean, that's because it's interesting, like the lineage of how these how the artists all kind of got pieced together, really, in a way, or how they all came together. You know, Brandon and Tim kind of sort of started up the nucleus of it in a way and came came out here first Uh, i mean uh if i'm not mistaken um well i just recently heard this i didn't know this but dj steph actually was the one that convinced tim to come out because they were familiar with each other through tape trading right and when steph passed tim tim had said that you know there wouldn't be an anacom without without dj stuff so that's pretty pretty interesting to think about well, yeah and i know that she i wouldn't was... be in california probably if it wasn't for dj stuff because i i moved to california to do anticon and fulfill a contract with big data and mush to do the follow-up the final cloudette album 10 right well i met stuff actually through tim as well he introduced me to dj stuff okay. so yeah i mean i think dj stuff definitely not to get too tangential here but i mean obviously i think she plays a pretty pretty integral role like in the early years of of championing the guy the 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 collective but also kind of like you know supporting the shows being at the shows and uh, amongst a lot of other artists too as well but i mean 
I think that she was a big supporter, early local supporter. I know that I think Ross Frank, who was, uh, you know, and, and Steph were that, uh, Rasta Q-tip. Yeah, Rasta Q-tip of various blends um, was the, maybe the promoter, or kind of they did the show together, bringing live poets out. Okay, um, and that was t- uh, Souls first, right? First yeah, Souls first. That's actually how Not his first group, but it was. Yeah, his, f- his first group was Northern Exposure. <laughs> right, right. Look. That's how I I know Tim through live poets because when I was in high school, I DJed on the college radio station in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is Virginia Tech's radio station, WUVT 90.7. And Tim mailed me a CD of uh, to the station of the Live Poets album. That, nice. Whatever that one was called with the red and green inverse photograph of him and uh, Mood Swing and then the other cat that was in the group at the time. So I've, I've known Tim since I was probably... 16 or something like that when he was still in Portland, Maine and met Brandon through uh, you know rec.music.hiphop the the news group and shit. So I go back so far back with those guys that like I've been privileged in a way or very fortunate I feel like to really know and sort of see the very beginning of Anticon like before it existed under that name and already be dialoguing with both of those guys individually, really because trading tapes, you know. But see how it uh, really came together one person at a time. Because when I first started filming the Anticon guys, too, here in the Bay, in Oakland primarily, it was during, it was before, definitely before Adam or Yoni and and yourself had moved out, you know, Mm -hmm. it was really when they guys started visiting for uh, those first initial visits. Right. And, you know, I filmed a lot of the making of stuffed animals, that project. (laughs) And you had some, did you do any music on that? Did you do beats on that? I I think I did two beats. uh, You got a copy? But I I don't have, I don't have them. They're, uh, Jeff supposedly has the the ADAT tapes. I had a dub of it at one point in time. I have a DAT tape of the the of mixed downs that that are not very well. I mean they're they're decent, but huh. um, love to hear that. Stuff. The version of stuffed animals that people have heard are it's like multiple generation uh, tape copy generation, right? Um, but I ha- but I have the original DAT that those those. What people have heard, I have so theoretically crystal clear version. Yeah, theoretically, you <laughs> could make, remix that then, right? We'd have to get an ADAT machine, but hmm. that's the thought. I'm I don't know busy. if it. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it uh, stood the test of time either. I mean, maybe uh, as a novelty, it was pretty adventurous stuff. <clears throat> um, so anyway, but I that's mean, the thing like back then, it was, there was just so much creativity and just you just anything goes kind of attitude, you know and. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't especially this, with you guys. Well, especially with Cloud Dead, it was just like, let's just, fuck it, do this. Well, this, does this, do you guys think this is cool? Yeah, fuck it, do it. Well, what was the production process? Because did each guy in the group actually contribute music? Like, was it all like layers of different ideas? Like, you, the first, uh, the first Cloud Dead album, the, the self-titled, you know, it was, it was first released as six, ten inches, mm-hmm. and then compiled in the album, uh, that was m- mainly my 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 production, mm-hmm. and uh, Yoni did a decent amount of production as well. Um, yeah, it was pretty much it was pretty much just me doing the beats and then giving those guys the stuff. Uh, you know, here's this track, here's this track, and then they would 
they'd write to it and they'd record themselves and then we figured out ways to piece them together like little sort of uh little ways to like glue tracks together right um so you know each track it's like i think the album itself is 12 tracks but there's probably over 50 actual uh little pieces that make up the entire album yeah but we just decided to keep them as just you know one side of a 10 inch you know yeah uh, but yeah, it was it was a. Uh... Do you remember making physics of a bicycle? <laughs> I remember. Uh, I remember mixing it down um, with Yoni. Here. Yeah, we uh, we mixed it down here with. Uh, we were using somebody's digital A track. I don't remember whose, but we we mixed it <clears throat> in Adam's. I'm sorry. Can, can we pause? Yeah, the process of that, like where that took place. I just love to know like a little bit of how that I love that song so I'd love to know how that came together yeah you know uh, that I just remember that uh, Dose he moved to California before we were done with the first Cloud Dead album which is one of the reasons why he doesn't appear on a, a, I think he's only on maybe half the album mm-hmm. uh, he moved to California before for us to, to focus on Anticon as a, as a record label right and Yoni and I visited California, uh, I believe it was 1999, and I just had a handful of instrumentals, and the uh, physics, physics of a Bicycle was one of them. Uh, and those guys did this, they recorded the song in California. I believe they recorded it at, you know, I, I really don't remember. It's Is it samples? Is that beat? Is that samples in that beat? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's three different samples. Yeah, three different samples. So it's all pretty sample-heavy shit, too, the Cloud Dead stuff. Yeah, I mean, I uh, everything I did on there was 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 sample-based. I mean, I still, to this day, do pretty much all sample-based. Yeah, it's just because the music itself is such a... I think, I think maybe because Cloud Dead is this... Still, somewhat of an anomaly, like genre-wise, you know, um, which I think is safe to say, is that like, in that, you know, you're using, and you guys are all hip hop heads, you know, like the foundation of like your music is is essentially like classic hip hop, uh, but Cloud Dead, while and this is just my interpretation of it, at least, you know, um, while it's not like by any means traditional hip hop, clearly, you know. Yeah. But the way it's produced is like is essentially with like a very classic like hip hop sensibility as far as the way that you know certain hip hop producers of that era that we kind of that we kind of came up in is like all samples you know yeah. sampling drums sampling bass lines sampling whatever you know uh, other kinds of instrumentation whether it's like guitars or roads or uh, you know effects of any kind but the the by the product that comes out of that the actual finished songs and stuff is like its own genre altogether which i guess the point i'm trying to make is of that era of like the end of the 90s into the early 2000s as far as experimental music went like it there weren't a lot of people that were doing full-on sample heavy stuff you know so for me uh the one group i probably could compare uh, Cloud Dead to, um, and they're they're totally different because they don't have vocals. Is Boards of Canada? 
I think those are the closest kind of in the they're different in many ways, you know. Sure. But they the aesthetic is has some true like kinship, I guess if you will. Like do you think is that like somewhat of a safe assumption to make? Knowing that probably now I'm I'm sorry to in, interrupt you again, but probably <laughs> during the time that you were making that shit, you might not have it's not like you were listening to them i didn't know i didn't hear boards of canada until after the the first album was finished right in fact i didn't listen to boards the the first time i heard the uh music has the right to children was when yoni and i moved across country here we we had a boom box in in the u-haul and adam was like you you should listen to this boards of canada and i was like cool let's play it you know so he gave it to yoni we listened to it and i remember being like this wow i i this resonates with me big time yeah um because too. and I'm sure that's they heard when they heard the first Cloud Dead album they I'm I'm sure they were just as intrigued as when I heard their music for the first time right now I would love to talk about this for a second too because if I'm not mistaken you're one if not the only producer that has remixed their stuff before right am I wrong in assuming that I. I believe I'm the only one that they've actually reached out to and said we want you to remix right something of ours and then we'll we'll actually include it on It was originally supposed to be a 12 inch with uh the Dave Van their, their their version of Dave Van Cowboy on the A side and then my version on the B side so right. I was like fuck it I'm going to I'm going to do like a long form piece because if it's just going to be on the B side I can have the whole B side to myself but yeah I mean I know that I believe that they were remixed by somebody else uh, and I think it was probably um, warp. Had That's different when the label commissions yeah. someone because of their own, uh, you know, agenda, whether whether what whatever that might be. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's slightly different scenario. But when the artist is like, "This is the dude that we want to like, that we feel uh, can do it," especially when it's a group that has as much mystique around them as yeah. like Boards of Canada, and you can't get much. I mean, there's only a couple others that are up there with as far as like un unaccessibility as far right. as touching those guys because they just don't fuck with society and shit. From what I gather, you know, um, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty amazing. They're one of the few groups that I I really admire how they've they've kept they've stayed true to their 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 vision, you know, and it's just yeah, it's they, un- incredible. They're they're just they're they're just so, so consistent and and they're really down to earth. I mean, I've I've met them uh, a couple times and out here I, or I, out there probably right. Uh, the first time I met them, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was in Edinburgh. We were touring, I believe it was 2003. We were touring. Uh, it was the Mush Tour uh, Europe tour. Uh huh. And uh, they came to the show. We, we were doing Cloud Dead Live. We were also doing a Re- Reaching Quiet Live, which was amazing project between uh, with uh, Yoni and I I love that album I want to ask you about that album too <laughs> but uh, but please yeah so they came through the show yeah they came to the show and uh, 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 two of the guys from Mogwai uh, also came the, the lead singer and the drummer and they nice. they drank all of the alcohol that was backstage classic yeah it was it was pretty funny actually just be, I wasn't really drinking much back then but but yeah we met Boards of Canada uh, after the show we went to a pub and it was just like hanging out with, you know, your buddies. You know, like yeah. it just it just felt very natural. And uh, they ended up 
we asked them to remix Dead Dogs 2 from the Cloud Dead 10 album. Yeah. <clears throat> which was huge for us. And then, um, yeah, it was uh, 2006 when they reached out to me to do, to, to, to remix something off their album, uh, The Campfire Head Phase. I was actually in Barcelona visiting my, my mother's family, mm-hmm. and I was pretty depressed at that time. I was, I wasn't happy with where music was going. I didn't know what I was doing necessarily. Like I had just re- uh, released the year before that uh, my album Burner. Yeah. And I j- I was working on what ended up becoming Level Live Wires, but I just there was no beat scene at the time, at least that I was aware of, and it just seemed like nobody was interested in beats. Everybody was was doing keyboard electronic shit and Yeah, definitely. Which which is which is which is cool with like I mean, you know, do you but I, I, I just felt like there was, uh, like, perhaps what I was really interested in was, was, was maybe it was over. It was just played out, and nobody was really too right. looking for that kind of shit. So when Boards of Canada reached out to me, and they were like, hey, we got a new album coming out. Listen to it. Pick any song you want, and, and we want you to remix it. So I was like, well, I want to remix Dave and Cowboy. And, you know, they, they told me that that would be the single. And so they they literally gave me five stems. Uh, each stem is like twenty seconds. Really? So if yeah, I mean, I I had very little. I mean, I had, I had a lot to work with, but I didn't. You know, traditionally when you when you remix, people usually give you a lot more material uh, to 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 work with. So it was that's one of the reasons why that my, my remix is what it is. It's like it, this own beast. Yeah, you know, because I, I well, that obviously was intentional on their p- behalf. Probably they're like, give him this little amount and see what he can do, right? That's exactly what because uh, Mike, um, he actually told me that he was like, I'm, I'm just going to give you a few things, and I want you to just do whatever you do with this stuff, and you, whatever you do, we'll we'll take it. And so I did what I did, and yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's funny too because at the time when that remix came out, I I again I thought it was going to be a 12 inch where I, I'd have the whole B-side and it turned out to be an EP and I was like, oh my God, like I, th- this is, this is going to be horrible. Like this. Like what would be horrible? Just like that, that you did, <laughs> if you knew it like was Like the last be- song on their EP is going to be my remix, you know, and it, it, right. it, I didn't make it with that in mind. Uh, again, I made it with, you know, th- this would be like a vinyl only, you know, B-side exclusive. Uh, and of course, when it came out, there was a, there was a decent amount of negative press, and this was back when I would actually pay attention to, you know, Pitchfork and you know these other websites that right. you know like I, I actually took that shit serious. Um, I've grown up a bit since then, uh, but yeah, it 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 got bad reviews, um, consistently got bad reviews, and I just felt like man, I fucked up, I f- fucked everything up for Boards of Canada. But at the same time, I was so inspired by them reaching out to me, you know, and, and that opportunity, and, and, and that's what inspired me to finish uh, Level Live Wires, and since then, I've, I've been pretty much on a roll. Uh, We've definitely been extremely prolific since that record, too. Yeah. I mean, there's been an album or a project of some kind, or at least, or even two at, uh, per year <clears throat> since then, it seems like. Yeah, you know, you know, for me, I, I have a lot of different interests. Um, I, I, I wish I could do what Boards of Canada does. I wish I could just. We put do, a record out every ten years. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't need to explain what Boards of Canada does because I'm, right. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you probably know Boards of Canada pretty well. But yeah, they, I, 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 I like doing all kinds of different stuff, so I'm, I'm not afraid to try different things, you know. And I, I, yeah. I, I just, I just do whatever I feel like doing. And I, I used to be, maybe back in the early to mid 2000s, a little too concerned with what I think or at the time what I thought people expected of me. Yeah. And uh for example, like I know that the sound that I had in the in the early Cloud Dead days, the Plan 9 days, that's the sound that I could go back to because I I still have that gear, but it's it's just I I'm not interested in doing. Like I I feel like I like I've done that, which is basically the doctor sample style of of production. Is that what you mean? Yeah, you know, and, and and what's crazy to me now is like there's 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 a whole scene of people that are strictly using Doctor samples, you know, and, and and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Low End Theory is Low End Theory seems to which is a which is a a, a weekly in L.A. since right. I don't know 2006. Yeah, which you you've played multiple times. Yeah, my first time at Low End Theory was 2008. Uh, it was a Beat Invitational. Oh yes, the Beat Invitational. Yeah, but the thing about Low End Theory for me that it, that was so when they first started to blow up for me it was confirmation it was like finally like the stuff that I was doing alone in my 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 bedroom in my in my parents' house in Cincinnati and you know ninety eight ninety nine just experimenting with the doctor sample experimenting with sampling and and recording on it on tape I mean the doctor sample two hundred two doesn't even have a sequencer. Right. Oh wow. You know, so it's you, the three hundred three does though. I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah th- th- that's when they added the the sequencer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but again, like, I I tapped into a sound with the two hundred two uh, at a time where I don't think anybody was really trying to to to, to go that route, and. So for me to 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 hear what was coming out of the low and thirty scene—I mean, not just low and thirty, but just the LA beat scene in general—to hear like kids doing like crazy shit on a doctor sample, like a right. three hundred three, just it, it. I'm not saying that like they, that oh the, those guys heard what I was doing, but it just it 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 was for me it was confirmation. It was like wow, I I wasn't wasting my time. Yeah, doing yeah. like experimenting, and you know back in the late '90s, I was actually tapping into something that. It took a generation to pass, you know, or I'm sorry, a generation to come along. Right. They they grew up on Cloud Dead. Like a lot of those guys that I've met were like, yo, I, I grew up on Cloud Dead. Well, yeah. I mean, p- kids that were like, you know, 15, 16, 17 in the year 2000 or 2001, yep. two, three. Um, yeah. I mean, that's you guys. That that was a, a benchmark of that of some of your guys' artistry during that era, you know. I, I think it's really interesting how the di- the different directions that everyone's gone to since then. I mean, because everyone uh, is still prolific in their own way, but has, you know, just further nurtured their own solo kind of yeah. uh, efforts, you know. Yeah, so the thing about Low and Theory, uh, right. and, and, and again, when I say Low and Theory, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more... Just the general scene, yeah, and and and, and what they uh, brought to the surface, uh, it, it. I needed that because again, in the mid two thousands, it seemed like there was there there were too many. Uh, I'm trying to think how to say this. Like there was like Anticon sparked a lot of stuff that 
I was never really that into like this this sort of nerd rap backpack rap white rap shit that just where it was just just you're taking yourself way too fucking serious you're you know you're trying you just you and I'm not going to call nobody out because you, yeah, know, you no. know who you are but <laughs> I mean yeah and that's I mean I don't think that's the point you're trying to make either, the point right? I'm trying to make is, is that I just felt like in the mid 2000s that that like where do we go now like where like what the fuck like what I I didn't know where to go with my music and I felt like a lot of my peers didn't know where to go with the the music and uh and again so that's when the LA scene when they started to bubble up it was like holy shit like th- this is what I was this is where my head was at in the late nineties. Right. Except I didn't have any peers. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a club to go to, to play my beats at. And so, no. And, and, s- and if you recall, not to interrupt you too, but I, I, I'm sure that as far as Anticon goes here in the Bay, I mean, cutting your teeth here and doing these, those shows that you guys did, whether it was like, you know, maybe at Rico's loft, which was maybe bef- a little bit before you got to the Bay, but yeah. that, that like some of the stuff in Oakland, what was that like digital uh, space? Oh, yeah. You know, Fuck. you remember that place? It was like a weird kind of room. That Slims, I mean, Great American Music Hall, and like the ten year anniversary type shit. The first one, yeah. You know, <clears throat> you guys were always kind of at least in that era. I feel like you were as a collective um, for a period of time. Every step was like the first step in in a certain direction. So there weren't a lot of peers. In fact, there was a lot of, you know people that were kind of scratching their head and the press included because yep, yep. there wasn't a really a precedent that was set because because kind of going back to the fact that you take guys that grew up listening to hip-hop that are using uh, that the uh the the production sensibility and it's like their interpretation but it's not traditional hip-hop you know but they're hip-hop heads so it's I don't know. It's like a very, you don't really see that anymore because things I think have been, uh, cause we're just like in a slightly different, you know, generation that, that we see a lot of their influences and, and biting, if you will, for lack of a better word, um, is a lot more universally accepted. Um, the art of copying is actually kind of its own sort of you know, coddled art form where it's like you want to, you strive to sound exactly like the other person. Like it actually, you want your, those trap ad libs and shit. Yeah. Yeah. You want, when you say yeah, or whatever the ad libs are, you want them to sound identical to whoever, whether it's like, you know, if it's, if, if it's Lil Yachty or if it's Gucci man, like, they have to make those ad libs sound exactly the same. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, it's I honestly don't pay attention to that that music. And, and my thing is like, it's an example. You, I'm just trying to. Yeah, make it. I mean, my my thing is like, I'm not a hater. Like you do you, right? Like I, I'm just thrilled that I'm still as inspired as I as I as I am, and I I can still do what the fuck I want to do. Like I, right. you know, like I I'm I'm not trying to 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 sound like nobody else. I'm I'm actually trying to sound like myself. Like I. I you know, and that, and and that's what I find was was difficult in the early days was because there was a lot of hatred being you know uh, whether it was negative negative press or like certain rappers getting up on stage calling us faggots or you know 
white this, elitist this, you know, this and that. And it's like, you know, I know who I am. I know my connection to hip-hop. I know where I grew up. You know, I'm going to be me, and I don't give a fuck what you think. You right. know, like, I, I, I just want to just... I often feel very compelled to, to indulge in my imagination, you know, and I, I, I'm entirely self-taught and I just keep going. I just keep going, you know, and, and I, I'm losing my train of thought, Peter. Well, I mean, I threw you with a, a gang know. of tangents. You brought up too. little Yachty and now, you know. <laughs> well, I'm trying to make, yeah, I was trying to make a little bit of an example, but yeah, I mean, I would love to bring it back to just like to the, to the music because I mean one thing is like we can talk about like um, you're I mean you have a long discography of, of your own solo shit yeah um, so what was the last thing that came out for you what's the newest shit or what are you working on right now my my last uh, well I just released uh, I just reissued Level Live Wires I just I, that just that's like a couple of weeks ago right or last yeah, week yeah uh, Anticon did a double a double cassette version uh, I remastered it I even so. I even lightly remixed some of the tracks on the album, and I found uh, a bunch of stuff that was previously unreleased. So there, there's a second tape that has oh, uh, a, a, a decent amount of unreleased stuff that I'm really happy with. But I, I mean, even by from that gear and stuff, like it's probably you, you know you don't use that same uh, you know equipment that you did that you're using now right so did you have to like uh dig to find that shit to unearth that stuff? yeah like going through dat tapes yeah uh going through hard drives uh a lot of cdrs um yeah speaking of equipment you know i, I started with an a track cassette and a doctor sample 202 and then i got an npc 2000 uh that's what i used to produce uh, Cloud Dead 10 or at least the tracks that I produced mm -hmm. on that album um, some of the stuff on Burner was done with the, the MPC uh, and then I got a SP-1200 I want to say in 2003 or 4 and that was probably my, my favorite sampler that I've, I've used and I used that one I beat the shit out of that thing uh, do you still have it? I do I do yeah it's not looking too good but it still works fine oh. uh, it's the very, very original the very first version that they put out of the um, 12 or the 1200? The 1200. Dope. Um, Where'd you find that thing? I, I got it used from, 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 from a cat in Oakland. I can't remember his name. Uh, cool. Actually, the first time... Uh, th this is one of my favorite stories about the SP-1200. The first time I met Jeff, or Jell, um, was, it was in Cincinnati. It was uh, summer of 1998. A buck 65 was there. Uh, this was at Adam and Yoni's place, the, the Green Think Mansion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, uh, Buck and Dos were doing North American Adonis. Yeah. Which is another stuffed animals type project that never got properly released. Uh, and I still have the, 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 the tapes of that because it was recorded on my A-track. Uh, and I didn't know what a sequencer was at the time because I, I just had the 202. And Jeff came in with the Crater Records and his SP-1200 and he's just literally cranking out beat after beat, just pulling records, cranking out beats, and I'm like mind blown. Like, what the fuck? What uh -huh. the fuck is going on right now? Like, how is he? How does he keep that drum in line with that that sample? Like, what what is? And he was just like, man. He told. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. Yeah, you know, he he. 
we didn't get along too well at first because I was I was just like really? I was like, yo, can I be down? Can I be down? And he was just kind of like, yo, man, just just chill, just just <laughs> go sit down, go sit down. Like I got this. And I love Jeff. Man. I was trying to play Buck some beats off my Doctor Two Hundred Two, and and Jeff was just like, dude, just just I got this. Go go sit. <laughs> And Jeff and I, you know, pe- people that know us, we, we're, we're still great friends to this day. And we've done hours and hours and hours of stuff together. I've, I've, oh, yeah. I've literally touched almost every track that he's made. I've either mixed it or co-produced it. Or... I mean, you've mastered tons of projects, too. I mean, for, the, for Anticon. Not for Anticon. Um, for others? I've only been mastering uh, more recently. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, with Anticon, I was I, I was the art director for the first six years um, as Anticon as a as a LLC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing a lot of the artwork, um, all the internets, the, the website stuff, T-shirts, posters, uh, magazine ads. I think you. Um, speaking of that, uh, I think you did the. Did you do the basic layout or sort of like the setup and layout of? MF Doom Special Herbs One for Female Fun, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, and I still have the, I still have the proof. <laughs> oh, that's so <laughs> and, dope. And a test pressing of that, yeah, yeah. Oh, very nice. You had a test pressing. Probably pay down a <laughs> uh, uh, down payment on a house with that one. Um, yeah, and, I no, just I remember still, that. I, I I still DJ the uh, the very first pressing the the the, the female fun pressing of the, of the absolutely special herbs there's still a couple of beats in there that i, I play out a lot that's dope yeah um shout out to tim for and that was through six months distribution which was basically the jump off for anticon that's how we got our uh, our distribution deal uh, a and with revolver mm-hmm. in san francisco and yeah yeah we we were working with you um what, what other i only did two projects with six months i did the mf doom special herbs one and a DJ Spinner EP called Compositions right, 2. Right, right, right. I remember that one, yeah. Uh, two great, you know, um, yeah, instrumental EPs. Much like how you were saying earlier, too, I've just always been a fan of, like, of the instrumental stuff. And when I did, when I started Female Fun, which really wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for Tim Holland, Soul, because he really gave me uh, the, you know, the infrastructure to work from. But it was at the start of Six Months Distribution, you know, it was long defunct, but that was probably when you really started you started really working doing the art director type stuff yep, you know because yep. um, yep. yeah you also laid I mean you laid out a lot of projects for the label too obviously I did yeah um, pretty much if you look at the I mean the, the very first design I did was uh, Deep Huddle Dynamics mm-hmm. the, the oh you did that album yeah yeah it was all done by hand uh, gatefold double yeah. vinyl Entirely done by hand, and then just scanned it in, and and uh, yeah, that was the first one I did. Do you still have those original pieces of paper? I know Bren Alias has. I believe he has the the front cover. Um, I have the the collages. There, there's actually collages that weren't used. Shit, man, I, I got a lot of I got stacks and stacks and stacks of artwork. Have you ever done an art show? I have. Yeah, yeah, I've done some drawings. Uh, I've, I've I've shown drawings and collages a few times oh cool man. nothing too significant i tend to be uh fairly private with my 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 artwork because it it's it's very personal it's it's more of a therapeutic kind of mm-hmm. outlet I, I don't really think of it as oh i gotta you know get a body of work together and right. do a show right it's just it's just i just draw 
But you have amassed a lot of work. I have stacks and stacks of drawings and collages, yeah. Did you do <clears throat> Selling Live Water? Did you li- did you lay that out, the album? I did, yeah. Uh, that one, um, That's Life great. Alone. Yes. What did you produce on, on, that, on that album, on Selling Live Water? You did the title track, right? I did the title track, and I did Salt on Everything. Yeah, both incredible you know, songs from Tim. Uh, Salt on Everything is... Uh, that's that's one of those few times where uh, I'll never forget making that beat. I, I th- in fact, this was back when we had six months, and we had an office in Emory, Emeryville, California, and I was living in Oakland. And you know, I I would show up around ten, eleven a.m. and and just work on stuff throughout the day. Uh, but one day I woke up and I and I I I had found a drum break the night before. It's a Roger Daltrey from the Who, one uh-huh. of his solo albums. It was uh-huh. a really hard drum break on the, on one of his albums. And I just felt compelled to make a beat. So I ended up not going to work that day, and I made the instrumental for Salt on Everything. Oh. And I, dr- I made the beat, and then I drove over to Tim's house, and by the end of that day, the song was fully re- was, was recorded. Oh, amazing. So I woke up, made the beat, didn't go to work, went to Tim's, Souls. He, he did the shit, and it was done. It was like, I mean, I've, I haven't had that experience too often you know where you just you feel so compelled like i have to do this i have yeah. to do this and then it's like he hears the beat and it's like oh shit like i i gotta do this i gotta write these raps and do it i think that song in particular like really like s- sums up that project too and tim's kind of intensity at that time yeah. too he's very intense at that time and i love him i love that guy like i've known him for a long time and i have a lot of love for him and um uh, and but at that particular time and that particular album, it's just like an intense project, you know. Like, um, I it's think it's classic, his, man. I think it's classic his, and, and albums for sure. I think it's it's a great, great body of work. Um, and just the way that so many different guys, producers, uh, from the that general camp and you know, uh, the people that are involved, like, really made it into like a pretty brilliant effort. So, anyway, that's like my What's hot me? take on it. To me, that album, uh, Selling Live Water, is kind of like the definitive Anticon as a as a group. Yeah. Because it's... I did two beats. Jeff did a couple beats. Joe. And then Alias, I think, did the bulk of the album. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Yoni, uh, Y, actually sequenced the album. Did he? I didn't know that. Yeah. And, uh, that was a struggle because t- Tim, whatever, you know, he, he is what he is. Uh, it's all good, you know, but he... We had a different vision for the album, and well, now it's a very personal thing. So, what? Uh, who's opinionated about how he wanted the sequence out? Probably, right? Yeah. I th- I mean, well, I think Tim just he didn't want to feel like he didn't. This is my the way I remember it, and I I could be wrong, but I it seemed like he felt like we were trying to take control of 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 his work, mm-hmm. and I think it. it it got to a point where where it was a little bit we 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 were button heads over stuff, and it's sure. like, look, man, like if we're going to be a collective and, and if we're going to do this, like just trust us, you know, trust right. us to to make this happen. And uh, Yoni being, you know, like Yoni's such a good guy. He's he's always like the 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 diplomat, you know. He's always everybody likes Yoni, you know, and and he's so talented. And and, and uh, we just said, okay, let's. How about it? How do how about we give it to Yoni and let him sequence it? And interesting. So that that's how that the album sequence was was 
That was Yoni's vision. Well, I mean, I think it ended up being pretty damn good. Telephone Jim Jesus. I'm, yeah, he's on it. Yeah, he produced yeah, he, something on it. I think he produced the first song, The Baddest Poet, yeah. Right. And Passage is on it, too, and I think somewhere mm-hmm. vocals. Yeah, he did the interlude, the God, This Is God. I haven't heard that album in so long. It's, a, it's You know, I haven't listened to it in a while, too, but it, um, it's gonna it's worth uh, revisiting, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, dude, we could, like, dig so deep into the every nook and cranny of the Anticon story and, and your production and stuff. I mean... Um, I was curious though, man, this is totally going off the track, but it's still talking about you and me and you. Cause we also, for a period of time, you know, uh, I, you know, was your booking agent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we did a couple, we did some shows, you know, when you were, yeah. when you were doing more live stuff, when you were kind of, it was around the, uh, burn, like right after burner and then the skate, what was the, what was the skate soundtrack called again? What was that soundtrack? Uh, time? Time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, This Is My Element was... Right, right. Yeah, I scored a entire skate video for Element back in 2006 or seven. I'm yeah, sorry. Right. So, um, but I was... Then, yeah, Andy Khan re- reissued it, well, uh, an, an, an edited version of the album a couple years later. I think it was 2009. But yeah, go, go ahead. What? Well, I was just wondering how your buddy's doing that we did those shows with. So we had a harrowing experience together. Well, this was um, this this, this was, was a few years later than the yeah, record. Yeah. But you know, you know, what I'm talking about um, Briar. Yeah, Briar, uh, Darren Fisher. Yeah, is he all right? Oh, he's doing great, man. Uh, is he still in the Bay? No, he's in Seattle right now. Yeah. Good. Yeah, he's. he's I still get it. You know, he'll occasionally text me. He'll send me a funny YouTube video. Right. Every cool. now and then. So yeah, now he's doing good. Cause he was um, he put out a couple of great records too, I, I recall I own one. Um, yeah, yeah, and he's uh he's he's done guitar work on some of my stuff. My uh, there's an album I put out a few years back called Trish, and he plays oh, yeah. he plays the guitar he, he plays on ladders, which is actually uh, his nickname. He's a tall guy. He's yeah six seven, <clears throat> uh, same height as Michael Jordan. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he had like a near-death experience with well, while the two of us were all like, I mean, the three of us were all together in New York City. Yeah. Not, not to that I need to rehash this totally, but I just it was kind of like this freak thing that went, that happened. And we yeah, were spent a month in the hospital. What which hospital was it? It was in like East New York, in like in a, not a very great hospital either. Yeah. And because um, I remember that trip very vividly. Um. Because the night before we like went and inexplicably went and saw Spoonie G. Spoonie G, yeah, yeah. At some, <laughs> like at like this weird, almost like a dive bar. It was like five people in. in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know he got sick. I mean, I, it's like that's not really the accurate way to. We describe were it. Uh, we we were at a uh, we went to rent a car, not too far from where you were living at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah he passed out in the in the parking lot and yeah had had a seizure and we had to go to the emergency room and and this was actually the the first day of the tour that you had put together for yeah. us and it was a small east coast run uh yeah and he ended up in the hospital for a month and then came back to the bay and got better uh got better pretty uh pretty quickly actually good and well if he's listening to this i just want to send him a shout out oh he's the big homie man lavish what's up 
Listen, I mean, I remember. listen to Brer, y'all. He, he makes beautiful ambient music. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, and then what's up? You did a bunch of records with Leaving Records too, right? With Matthew Davis. I did a few things. Couple. Yeah. Um, my, Swedish my, Fish was that one. The first thing I did was a it was a live recording. I, I got to open for Finesse. Oh yeah, Finesse at the, at the Swedish American Music Hall, right in San Francisco, and I did a. Uh, it was basically like an improv. Uh, set where I just I, I I had like a portable turn turntable I had uh, my a couple samplers and a and a, a small tape machine and I was just going at it and I uh, actually speaking to Darren Darren actually uh, he he recorded my set and I sent it to Matthew David uh, who I had met through Lowen Theory mm-hmm. um, and he really liked it and was like hey I want to put this out are you down and I was like really you want to put this out and he was like yeah let's do it and I was like right, cool cool. And then uh, around 2011, 2010, uh, I gave Matthew David some material that I was working on, uh, which ended up being Sisters. Yeah. And that came out last year, 2016. I can't always remember the dates. On a VHS tape. We did do a VHS, yeah. Uh, This guy, uh, he goes by Big Popper. He did videos for almost every track. There's a couple that he didn't do videos oh, for. And he was like, yo, would you be down if, if I did this on VHS? And I was like, why not? Fuck it, do it. Yeah. So, you know, he, uh, Big Popper covered the VHS part of it. Uh, Leaving Records put out the 12-inch. Um, I also got a Boards of Canada remix. Amazing. For for the titles uh, track of Sisters, Sisters. Um, and that was basically just me gently harassing Mike for about uh, about two years <laughs> just sending him an email like yo man like because uh, I sent him the song Sisters about two years before he did the they did the remix and he got back to me immediately and said you know like this, I li- really like this and and Matthew David was like man if you can get a Boards of Canada remix that would be that would just be so awesome and I was like yeah I'll try I mean you know it's they're not that easy to get a hold of yeah I wouldn't think so but luckily, uh, if I email Mike, he'll respond at you know at some point. So I just kept sending him emails. <laughs> yeah, man. And uh, yeah, they came through with a pretty interesting. It's almost like a collaboration. Like they took they took what I did and they they put drums to it, and they didn't restructure it. They didn't uh, add any new melodic elements. They just. That's not true. They added some some bells and stuff. I'd love to see you guys do an album together. I would love to. You know, we've I've talked to Mike about that uh, about visiting the their studio and. and Have you ever been? Only once when I was on tour back when we first met them. What's it like? No, no, no. I'm I'm saying I've never been to their studio. Right. Okay. But, but you, yeah, when you saw them, you hung out with them. Yeah, yeah. I, dude, I would love to go to their studio. I'd be very curious to yeah know what it's like. But we have talked. This, this, this is this ain't no bullshit. Like we've emailed about like, hey, if you can, ever, if you ever make it to Edinburgh and you want to come to our studio, you're more than welcome. And I'm like, God damn, but really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, if anyone could do it, it would be you, man. I mean, the the track record you guys already have. That I mean, and the way that you know, kind of going back to some of the earlier stuff, like at the beginning of Anticon and predating Anticon, it's just those. Like reaching quiet and yeah. and cloud dead 
And even like the stuff with Serengeti that you and Jell and Serengeti did together, like these kind of collaboration, like long form collaborations and stuff. And I don't know, like you're a good collaborator. Like, I think you can like, you, you kind of have a sense of, uh, melding into another artist. I'd like to think so. I yeah. Mean, would yeah. you think so? Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's, I think that's why Jeff and I, Jell, we've, we've done so much work together because we, it's gotten to a point with him where especially when we were producing the, the early Serengeti stuff, like yeah. the album Car, the first Kenny Dennis EP, you know, he would he would come over and we would just we wouldn't even talk. We would just we would just do stuff, you know. Yeah. And it just we, we had this we don't really do that much anymore. Um, you know, things change. People get a little older and things happen and, you know, it is what it is. But uh yeah, I mean the, during that period, this was like uh the two thousand eight, two thousand nine we were just cranking shit out and it just was so natural and uh i've never collaborated with anybody else quite like i have with with, with joe yes yeah, it's, but, it's but, pretty but amazing speaking of collaborating i mean i i i often get asked to to to, to collaborate with random pe people hit me up on social media and hey i love your shit i'd love to work with you and like my thing is like i want to know who you are like i want to be physically present you know like do we click do of we course have, you know similar tastes because I don't collaborate with that many people, but when when I do, it's usually, in my opinion, fairly special. The results that that, that come, you know. Of course, yeah, man, has to be. Yeah, and like working with Serengeti, I mean, I've. That's the thing too is like uh, Anticon reissued the Time soundtrack, and then I I pretty much was like, you know what, I don't want to make any more solo albums. I'm kind of over that, and then just happened to run into Serengeti and we hit it off and uh he actually came out here for uh, a haiti benefit show i think this was 2009 or 2008 and we clicked and before i knew it he was he was visiting berkeley and we were just just recording so much shit man and and lots of different types of shit too i mean i mean i don't know if i'm hopefully i'm not like destroying the mystique of this but you did like the grim teachers shit though too right I didn't do the Grim Teachers. No, I I did the artwork for the for the cassette version. Okay, gotcha. Uh, the Grim Teachers. No, that was somebody else. Some some cat in L.A. I can't remember his oh, name. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, my bad. But the thing with that stuff, it was you know, it was all SP twelve hundred. At least the the first the the car uh, C A R C A B, which was an EP, and then the, the Kenny Dennis EP. Those those projects were all done with the SP twelve hundred, with an emphasis on on a lot of scratching. What you know the song Melissa. Melissa, Melissa. Well, yeah. yeah, you do that one. I had no, no that's Grim Teachers. I know. Okay, now I'm fucking up. <laughs> uh, but hey, the man. Kenny Dennis stuff, though, regardless, is yeah. I mean, that persona and the uh, with that style of production behind it is well, dope, man. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like you know, uh, Jeff and I can get pretty goofy, you know, and and it's it's fun to. I, it was just so fun to work on that stuff because it was just like anything goes. Like as long as it's dope. And as long as you can bang, you know, you're, you're bobbing your head to it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and the cuts are nice and, you know, the samples are dope. It, it it was just a great experience. And do you think that you will stay in the Bay for here on, here on out? I've been living in the same cottage in West Berkeley for 13 years. Um, and I recently got a new landlord and she's awesome. So I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon cool i mean it's because it, it especially for me knowing the guys when everyone moved here to the bay and 
seeing how, you know, as life moves on and it's different ways and people do different things in their lives, a lot of people moved, left the Bay, you know? Yeah, that's right, man. You know, uh, Dos One just left. He went to, I believe... Santa Fe. Santa Fe, yeah. And I think it's just me and Jeff at this point, yeah. It is. And, it, I mean, it's the same in New York. A lot of my friends uh, that I knew from... I've been living there for, you know, over 15 years, and uh, a lot of people left or, you know, get married or have kids, and, yeah. you know, they just... You know, they just kind of fade in and out of your life, especially with, like, music friends and stuff where it's like, I don't know. Those friendships, they're valuable, um, but people kind of shift in and out of your lives for whatever reason. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, you and Jeff uh, hold down that original kind of crew, you know, here, or the last semblance of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you would have told me back in 2001 when I moved out here that, hey, all these guys that you're building with and all the extended family, the rest of Foreign Bodies guys and Controller 7s, the Mood Swing 9s, these, I mean, Matt Chang, like all, well, yeah. actually, uh, Matt Chang is still around. True, true, true. Um, but just all these, all these, all these guys that we're working with, you know, and, and, you know, we had such a support system, like we were doing shows on a regular basis. And, yeah. You know, you, you would go to a show and there'd be 30 plus people that you were like, you know, were like, we're actually doing this together. Like, like whether it was the immediate Ansicon guys, the owners, or it was the extended family and every one of them, except for Jeff and I are gone, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, sure. they just, and my, so my thing was like, if you, if you'd have told me that, that like, Hey man, you're moving to California to do this, but within 15 years, all your peers are going to be gone. I wouldn't have believed it. You know, like my thing is like, I came out to California to, to just do Nostom and, and do Anticon and it's been a very interesting ride man like and I I'm still going man you know you, you know what's crazy uh, I think I finally finished my new album today and that's what I was working on when you came in no way really was was chopping up the you know uh, chopping up the individual tracks yeah yeah wow. it's, it's it's I've been working on something for about three years now and it's it's all it's mixed in my new studio, uh, so which is where we're recording this as well, which is why it sounds so nice and dead up in here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, a couple years ago, I I came across a fairly dilapidated open air art gallery, uh, and I converted it into what what we're sitting in today, which is a pretty cool little studio. Yeah, I like it. It's a great vibe, man. Very good vibe, yeah. It's a very old building, built in the twenties, I was told, by one guy who lived in this one room shack. Uh, there was a creek r running by, wow. and then in the fifties, a family came <clears throat> in and, and brought the bought the property and turned it into an art gallery. And I was told that pretty much since the fifties up until a couple years ago, this was an art gallery that had lots of very talented artists come through and very and some famous artists and i get to be the last artist up in this this building because they're going to tear it down in probably a year or two wow so really it's, it's a temporary space temporary but it's it's done wonders for my creative process because you know I'm, I'm so used to being a bedroom producer yeah like my i literally my, my bedroom is literally all studio gear and then a bed like i don't, I don't have clothes i don't have a uh, nothing it's just a bed and all my studio gear and the, this opportunity came along to to 
do a second studio away from you know where I live and I was like well it's kind of kind of crazy to think about but I'll do it and it took about a year to put the place together and it's been amazing man like I've been doing a lot of mastering and and really just stepping up my mixed game and yeah we you did the master for the the dame funk uh, serato record that's that right did. that's right and that artwork that packaging is is beautiful yes great uh, job shout out to freddie yeah great job great job and those tracks are fucking dope yeah and they knock too man thank thankfully for that mastering well you know there's only so much you could do with mastering but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. you know if, if you put the 12 inch on it won't skip <laughs> it won't bounce around <laughs> right I was pretty nervous doing that, and I'm I'm really excited that you actually, when you asked me to do that, I was like, oh shit, like, okay. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> no, nah, I think it's perfect because you take, you know, uh, producers that might not necessarily like intersect, um, uh, and but that have like a sonic, you know, common ground of like wanting, you know, clear just shit that knocks, man. And, you know, your guys' actual beats and production are different. I mean, Dame Funk and DJ Spinna and yours, they are all have very differences. They're all from different parts of the country. But one thing I know, especially with you, and it goes back to the very beginning of this conversation, really, is that, um, you know, you have that car stereo sensibility, yep, bro. Yep, yep. <laughs> and you like shit that knocks. Sometimes your stuff is super heady or crunchy or or dark, deep, ambient type things, you know, very emotive stuff. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, too, as a producer, beyond the, the what, you know, what you just mastered, but is that, like, you have a wide kind of spectrum of stuff that you've done over the years. You know, it's, it's interesting when, you, when, I, when I think about it, like, starting with car stereos and just wanting to make beats like my own beats that I could play through my car stereo like I almost feel like I came like out of the slime I just kind of like I would listen to all this you know I mean I had I had a six CD changer so you know I I, I had all this you know Compton's Most Wanted fucking Wu-Tang fucking 8-Ball and MJG I was listening to so much stuff that that knocked yeah you know so I was very familiar with okay this is what eventually someday I would I would it'd be amazing if I can actually make shit knock like this yeah yeah you know so when you listen to my early stuff there's some 808s in in, in there but you know it's there's there's some it's just muddy it's messy and at the time I thought that was cool like I I, I was actually going for a lo-fi thing you know sure sure because it just was totally left field no, nobody was doing lo-fi you know especially in 98 everything was like fucking crystal clear and fucking yeah radio ready um that's not true because you know I, I i didn't know about all the stuff that was that was happening simultaneously yeah, meanwhile other stuff people have the same sensibility in different parts of the world and country too yeah so what i'm getting at is <clears> like <throat> i feel like where i'm at today is like i'm finally at the point where i'm i can make some shit i can mix it i can master it and it'll yeah. bump the way that i always wanted shit to bump in my car you know hell yeah man and i haven't had a driver's license in years i don't drive <laughs> right um I still have my 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 the my car stereo. I still have the 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 components. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Someday I want to put together like a little mobile system. I've, I've that's been my dream for a long time. But oh, I just, that'd be dope, man. But yeah, man, it's it's been fun uh, having a a second place to work. I still do most of my creative work in my cottage in the bedroom, and then right. I, I bring it here to 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 my other studio and get down on the mix and yeah, yeah. 
Well, dude, man, uh, I love it. I'm glad that we finally were able to have this conversation too. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that, like, <clears throat> you know, we were able to cover so much stuff. Uh, like, uh, it, it's. I think it's great to be able to talk about this, but hopefully, people that listen to this um, that may only know because you have like kind of like you know some levels of fans over the years, you know, because there's since you've been so active in recent years too. <clears throat> I think you got a lot of like younger kids that are that are peeping it that that you've uh, inspired too, but hopefully, you know, people will kind of dig a little bit further in, get that reaching quiet album, you know. And which I think is a great, totally slept on, uh, bedroom kind of heady bedroom project. But that's just my own personal side note. Did in, you talk to Yoni about the research? I did, of course I did. Nice, yeah, nice. I had to. Yeah, he loves it. Yeah, we we um, uh, <clears throat> yeah we had a great conversation about it. That and Cloud Dead. I mean, I I think for for guys like you, I think you and Yoni and and Adam and really like this kind of the the kind of the arc of the original Anticon sort of uh, group of guys, the one thing that, from me, from Peter Agostin, that, that this is a guy that has known all you guys for a long time, slept on each other's floors, and I've filmed you, and we've yeah, done yeah. shows together, and this, that, gotten drunk together, this, that, and the third, is that the one thing I've always observed, uh, especially with you guys, is that you guys are so dedicated to making music producing and creating shit you know like uh talking about it is fun but the the fact of the matter is that and i and i got this sense when i was talking to yoni too which was just yesterday um is that that's really his element too is just uh just working in the studio you know and everyone has a different approach different sensibility they have their own influences and their personalities are different all that regular life shit but uh but, you know, from Tim and Jeff and Adam and you and, and, and Yoni and, and even Bren and uh, Brandon. so on and, and Brandon, um, who I love to death, every, uh, has this like very dedicated, they're very dedicated to their craft, however they approach it. Um, yeah, and some of us are more productive than others, but yeah, they're, they're, we're, we, yeah we're very serious about what we do for yeah. sure. And productivity, I think, is a relative term in that like, that doesn't stop someone from constantly thinking about it, too, exactly. conceptualizing yeah, exactly. it in their minds, too. Um, and some people make a lot, like the way you do artwork, too. Sometimes you make a lot of stuff with no intention of showing it to anyone, right? You know, right. Or sharing it or performing it. I think Brandon's a good example of that, and I love Brandon to death. Like he uh, is constantly creating. He might not give two shits about sharing it with anybody, you know, or uh, doing a show, you know, or getting up on stage or anything like that. But the guy's uh, pretty brilliant. You know, my thing is that what I've been figuring out, you know, I'm 41 years old now and I've been doing this for pretty much half my life, uh, doing no, uh, Odd Nostom. It, it, I think it's about, you know, <clears throat> growing up listening to hip-hop, you always heard this term about, like, you know, knowledge itself. Yes. And I never, I, I didn't understand what that meant for a long time but then as i've gotten older and I'm, I'm i'm realizing you know it's it's knowledge of self literally means getting to know yourself knowing who you are so for me uh my music uh my my drawings collages designs it's just it's just a it's just a a, a, a byproduct it's right. just it's just it's just what happens it's what i do it's my imagination and i 
I do my best to to not let anything get in the way of my 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 voice, my vision, you know. Yeah. And I think that's why I've been able to to come up with a sound that that people seem to, you know, they they'll, they'll say it's like my, you know, my my, my it's my sound, no stop, that sound. I mean, that's you know? invaluable. But the thing is, is like you know, people will ask me like, "Well, what? How do you get that sound?" And I'm like, "Well, I, I'm I'm sampling records. I'm using this sampler, and I'm and then, but it's it's not about the tools. It's about me. So, as 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 long as I can f- allow myself to just uh, let let things flow, and just not worry about like, well, what is this beat for, or what is this drawing for, or what is right. this like? I think it's okay to just create." I think it's okay to just indulge in, in whatever your interests are. Yes. And to me, that's what I think knowledge of self really means. Know thyself. You know, it's just, what are your interests? Okay, your interests are that. Well, go do it. Yeah. You know, and if you only have so much time in the day to do it, okay, that's fine. You know, like, I don't get caught up in, you know, I, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, you know, and I, I, I do take that kind of stuff fairly serious i do promote my stuff but it's, yeah. it's not about that i don't make music to sell records i don't make music for i mean i barely make money money anymore you know i mean i make enough to pay my rent and i i can cover the studio but you know it's just for me it's just not about none of that it's just this is what i'm interested in this is what i like i want to make beats i want to draw like this so i do it yeah and oh yeah i would encourage anybody to give it a try you know don't Turn the internet internet off, you know. Put your phone away and just focus on what you're interested in. Definitely, you might be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, man. And thank you for your time. Absolutely, Peter. I think it was great. My pleasure. Were you happy with the conversation too? Yeah, I don't even remember half of what we talked about. (laughs) No, it's an epic one. And uh, how many was it? Two hours? Hour? We're, yeah, we're about two hours. Yo, thanks to Dave Madsen, a.k.a. Odd No Sum, for taking the time to do this conversation with me in his recording studio in Oakland, California. Thank you guys so much for listening. My name is Peter Agostin. You have been listening to the Houseless Podcast. It's my weekly podcast, which you can find anywhere where podcasts are found. If you're listening right now, please subscribe and please spread the word. Um, copy and paste the link, find it on SoundCloud and post it on your Facebook page. Stuff like that will go a long way. Trust me. Every episode is edited, edited by, see, I'm going to leave that part in though, but it's edited by CJ Stewart and myself. Um, what else? What else? Hey, it's my birthday today, October 30th. So I'm going to chill after posting this. You know what I'm saying? Actually, I might do some emails, uh, but I am going to go to a show tonight in New York, um, on monday october 30th uh interestingly enough ac alone z-man equipto a plus and the dj true justice are in new york very randomly that's uh you don't see west coast rappers of that ilk in new york city very often so i'm gonna be there and yeah so all right y'all uh i'm gonna leave this show with a track produced by nosam with this dope japanese um bay area mc joji and they have some new music that they're working on together and um i think you're gonna dig this too especially if you're a fan of japanese if you speak japanese you're in luck uh and i love this shit it's dope 
I met Joji uh, when I was in the Bay. Very cool dude. And uh, these guys make some pretty cool music together. So this is just like he put it on SoundCloud. I figured I'm going to put it out there. It's not like a record that's out. Um, but I know they have some material in the works. So hopefully this turns into an album or an EP or single or something like that that comes out. But in the meantime, you can find it on SoundCloud too. But I'm going to drop it here on the house list. So check it out, y'all. Thanks so much. And I will see you guys soon. Be safe. And all that. Peace, y'all. Now